0: Are
1: you ready, AP? Ready when you are. Let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate? you right to go? Yep, standing by. Bertie, you
2: on the bass? Yep, ready to go.
1: All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just do good old
0: boys.
1: Two good old boys. Never meeting a hunk. He saw he never saw the had no hair since the day that was born. Straighten the curves, straighten the curves, flatten the heels. The coffee might get 'em, but the Lord never will
3: For in the way.
1: Don't
0: understand
2: why I can't get face TV. Yeah. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you company. Thank you so much for hitting the download button on our little program. What's the show about? Well we just find interesting people from all walks of life who have their mojo working in or out of work. Now they could be working in social enterprise, they could be in business, could be about creativity, innovation, wellness, uh, the brain, grit, mental toughness, or maybe they're uh, an armed robber. Uh, whatever, whatever it is, if we can learn from it, take something away to put into our own lives, then it's a good thing. Speaking of armed robbery, our guest this week is, this is serious, folks, he's a convicted armed robber. Now, we've had... Ah, robbers of the show. That's not that's not, nothing new, but not a convicted one, have we? <laughs> no. But this uh, can I just say this is gold,
1: absolute gold.
3: The Mojo Radio Show. Our
1: guest this week is Noel
2: Razor Smith. He's a British crim, diamond geezer. Noel Razor yeah. Smith. He spent the greater portion of his adult life in prison. Now, in prison, this is pretty fascinating. He taught himself to read and write gained an honours diploma from the London School of Journalism and an A-level in law. Now, who is this guy? He committed over 200 bank robberies, spent more than 30 years in prison and is described as a lifelong criminal with 58 convictions and a judge gave him eight life sentences and 80 years to be served in concurrent (laughs) sentences. So eight back-to-back lives and Hmm. let's just throw in, I don't know, another 80? Just in case. (laughs) To be served concurrently. His name is Noel Razor-Smith. It's a true honour. Noel, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Good morning. This is pretty special for us because I don't know in our history, Robbo, we've had a convicted armed robber. On the show as a guest before.
1: No, but I haven't checked your oh, credentials, wow. so we can't really talk about <laughs> hosts. <laughs> yeah, not not, conv- not convicted at least.
2: Um, no, this is this is a very interesting show for us. What I what I want you to start with is take me back to a moment when you were in your childhood that shaped this whole career of yours, because you have got this. You're notorious for this career
3: you have.
2: What started
3: yeah. it all? What was the moment? Well, to be quite honest with you, it's, um, it was um, the day I was playing truant from school when I was 14, with a friend of mine, and we were um, going down the street in South London, and we were suddenly confronted by a, a van load of armed, um, large, drunk men who dragged us into the van and <coughs> proceeded to torture and beat us. Um, and it turned out they were a burglary squad; they were undercover police officers we had gone out for a drink at dinner time and decided we looked like a couple of likely dads. So they uh, got us into the van, actually twisted my finger until it snapped, um, give us a right proper beating and told us we had to admit to every burglary they had on their books, which we did. Um, Obviously we were kids, we were frightened, Um, we admitted to all these crimes. And lucky enough by the time we got to the magistrate's court, the magistrate looked at it, saw we had no previous convictions, saw some of these crimes had been committed in the middle of the night and with large amounts of money and just didn't believe it. Um, they'd done an investigation and found out it wasn't us and the charges were dropped. But when we, we were advised to sue the police um, for wrongful arrest and and for the beatings, and that was when my troubles really began. The police sort of took it as a vendetta and, and would come around raiding my mother's house all the time and, and give me a slap every time they see me. And that kind of turned me against the law.
2: Did you... Did you then take on a personal vendetta as well, Noel? Because you've gotten into a lot of trouble. Was that the start of you going, well, if they're going to come at me, I'm going to come at them?
3: Yes, it was. It was a conscious decision um, made when I was still a bit stupid and a bit young and immature. Um, And I stuck to it and, and I decided the police were my enemy and authority was my enemy for some of the things they'd done to me. And I decided that I was going to become a criminal if that's what they wanted and that's what I was going to be and I was going to be the best criminal they'd
2: ever seen. <laughs> do you know what's interesting, Noel? Reading a lot of your stuff and listening to interviews you've done, you said that back then you thought that bank robbery was a noble crime. Did you almost yeah. convince yourselves that you were kind of like the Robin Hoods, that you were out to do the right thing against these guys that had a vendetta against you?
3: It, it was kind of like that in the beginning, yeah. And I mean, you've got to bear in mind that I grew up where, in a society where basically robbers were presented as heroes. I mean, every day we'd come mm. home from school and we'd watch the adventures of Robin Hood, who was nothing but an armed robber hiding out in a forest, uh, a <laughs> big turpin. You know, these kind of people were presented to us. Jesse James and the James Gang they were presented to us as as kind of folk heroes. Um, So there was a bit of that, there was a bit of the romanticism of a 14-year-old boy um, looking at these things and thinking, yeah, that's the life for me. If if you want me to do that life, that's what I'll be.
2: The Guardian said about you that you were a lazy, greedy bastard who had no interest in working for a living.
3: I actually said that myself about myself in my first (laughs)
2: book. (laughs) (laughs) So you said about yourself you had no interest in working for a living... And you yeah. came to live the buzz of professional crime. What was that like? Just tell us about that. Because there'd be nobody listening, Noel, who would have been into the lifestyle or the work that you did back at that time. What was it like to be a professional criminal, criminal living living for a buzz?
3: It, it was kind of, um, you know, that was it. The adrenaline was actually, it, it became a big thing. Um, there was nothing, I, I would, I don't forget, I was a pretty sort of, um, ineffective kid, you know, I was, I was a skinny little kid. I'd been bullied by the police. And then to, to actually have the, um, the buzz of going out there myself and controlling places, controlling a banking hall or controlling a, part, a, a bit of pavement for a while. I suppose to me, it was, if I'd have been a bit richer and grown up in a in a better family, I probably would have got that buzz from jumping out of airplanes, skydiving, or you know, big game hunting or uh, mountaineering. But I was a, I was a working class kid from South London, and and that was how I got my buzz. It became addictive. I mm. actually, you know, I I, I craved it.
2: You know something, when Robbo said he'd been in touch with you, Noel, and you are going to come on the show for a chat, what I was really curious about is a couple of things, and I'm I'm going to lead into your time in prison in a second. But hearing you say that as a skinny kid who took on this life of crime and became something, it almost seems like you finally found an identity that you're comfortable with or identity that people looked up to or an identity that had some respect. Was that the case, mate? When you find that, and is that, is that what you see with kids on the street today? They're, they're struggling to find an identity. And in the absence of finding one in to do social good, they can find and build an identity in crime. Is that kind of where, where it went for you?
3: I think it is, yeah. And I think it's like that for a lot of people who start out young in crime. You know, you kind of get into this mindset where you're enjoying what you're doing um, and you think, well, you know, as long as you set your own personal boundaries. I, I would say things like I would never shoot anybody on a robbery. You know, it's all just false stuff that criminals tell, tell themselves. But, you know, I was quite comfortable to be that person, and I enjoyed doing it. And, and there was no other sort of out for me, really. It was either sport. And I know it sounds a cliche, but it was. It was either sport working in a shop or, you know, doing what I did and getting into what I did at a very young age. I kind of enjoyed it. And, you know, that became my identity. I enjoyed who I was. Um in and out prison so yeah
2: you, like and in prison, this is what really got me in prison, you said you're a diamond geezer, like the coolest name, so you're a diamond geezer, and yeah. i I need to understand what a diamond geezer is, and is that an identity that, that once you got inside, you assumed that role? Yes, it
3: is I mean the diamond geezer it's it's a bit of a a bit of a cliche in English crime, but the Diamond is are kind of all the top criminals. You know, you all get together. When you're in prison, you all sort of gravitate towards, towards each other, armed robbers, gravitate towards other armed robbers. And, you know, it's, it's the guys who have the kind of the code, if you like. We had a sort of unwritten code. You don't grasp on your mates. You don't leave anybody behind. You know, everyone gets a fair share of the money. You never speak to the authorities or the police. It was that kind of thing. We took on that sort of, you know, that old code from... The, from Earlier in, in criminal life, and, and we sort of lived by it. And if you did uh, offend against it, then you were you were ostracised, and that was you finished in the criminal world and the prison world. So you know it was, it was pretty important to us.
2: Did did you do you carry a sense of pride about being a diamond geezer inside? Now
3: you do, yes. I mean, I, it's very stupid, I know, and it, it, it sounds trite, but you do. It's it becomes your identity because that's what you are. You've got to remember, when you're taken off the streets and you're put into a prison and you've got 10 years left to do, you know, you can't just sit around and and, and cry about it. You've got to kind of forge your identity in prison. You've got, prison is not an easy place. It's a violent, horrible place, and you have to make sure that people are not going to take advantage of you. And you do that by becoming one of the chaps, by becoming one of the people Who will actually fight back and who will make people afraid to go against you. And that's the only way to survive in prison within the top security jails in England.
2: Because it's funny hearing you talk, Nolan, and looking at the stuff that I've read about you and listened to you, it's it's funny that although people listening will say it's a life of crime, there are so many management or leadership lessons that the cross from the criminal side being in jail to the corporate world, and some would say they're pretty – in a lot of countries they're linked right now, but that aside, yeah. how, do you, how do you establish that leadership? Because you served 30-odd years in prison and you went to multiple prisons and, and hardcore prisons with hardcore men around you, like the worst of the worst.
0: What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation –
2: You must have been able to lead. How do you do that in prison?
3: Well, you you have this kind of... Prisoners have this kind of philosophy in in the top security prison. You have to live there for many decades. So, you know, the game needs to be harder than the next man, to be more vicious, to build yourself a reputation by deed that people will know that if they try and go against you, they'll be in trouble. That's how you gain your respect in jail. Don't forget, it's not like the... The straight world, where you gain your respect by being smart and you know being a good businessman, you gain your respect by being the most violent and the most nasty bastard there is about. You know that's mm. what you do. Um, and and a lot of people are in the running for it as well. So you're up against some heavy competition. But if you can kind of claw your way to the top of the pile, then you know you your prison like a set, really. People will leave you alone. But you do have to do the things.
2: You were given an incredible amount of life sentences back to back. I mean. You, you said yourself yeah. that when you were sentenced, you you said to yourself when you heard the judge give you the sentence, I'm going to die in prison. H- how did you keep yeah. going in those early days, Noel? You served three decades in there. How did you keep going?
3: Well, it was very hard, as you... Expect, you know, it wasn't, it's not a walk in the park doing a long prison sentence, especially when you think that it might be the end of your days in prison and, and you never get out. I mean, I had to make a, de- a decision very early on, and I think all long term prisoners do, and that was how was I going to do this sentence? Mm-hmm. I've done my previous sentence by fighting against the system, um, and I thought, well, that's the only way for me to go. And at the same time, I was kind of getting educated then, whereas when I was younger, I couldn't read or write. I'd kind of educate myself and I thought to myself, well, I've maybe got the rest of my life in jail. What do I do? And I thought what I'd do is a whole fight for about two or three years and settle in and, and then see which way the wind takes me, to be honest with you, because, you know, once you're there, you're there. Um, and lucky enough, what happened to me was I, I kind of got into education uh, quite early on and that kind of distracted me. I learned to write and I, I learned to read and I, you know, I started putting my sort of efforts into that. I never really thinking that there might be some end result that might be released someday until I was kind of halfway through it, and then it looked as though I might be able to get released, and I just carried on with that. I put my stuff into education my whole life.
2: And I want to talk about that just for a second, is that you were put away and given a book a day, which you said or was written about you turned into a rugby ball and just kicked it around until one day... You got a book and actually had a look at it and suddenly this whole new world opened up for you, which has now turned into a best-selling author's career. How hard was it for you to change identity, Noel? Because you're in maximum security with hardcore crims. You've got this this identity as a diamond geezer. You have come out as an armed robber who has done multiple armed robberies yet here you are sitting down with a book. How hard was it for you to change that identity?
3: It was very hard. Don't forget, I've been, been at this game since I was 14, and, you know, I knew everybody, and everybody knew me. So it wasn't like I could just, like, go behind the door and say, well, I've changed my life. You know, people were, even up until, say, three years ago, I was released in 2010, and up until three years ago, people in the criminal world were still phoning me up and asking me if I wanted to go on a bit of work with them. <laughs> And um, <laughs> congratulations on in your way out. Um, but I was genuine, and the thing was, I told everybody. I said, "Look, this is not for me." i gathered a lot of prisoners together, and I said, "Look, this is not for me. I'm sick of it." And I really, well, I think what really helped me, and it sounds horrible, when it, but it's true, is my son died while I was serving that sentence. My young son, he was 19, um, and I was in Whitehall Prison, and they come and told me and. You know, it, it's devastating. I, I wasn't. Even, I was so high security. I wasn't even allowed to go to his funeral. So after that, I had a long think, and I thought, you know what? I, I, I don't really want to be part of this no more. And I just told everybody straight. I said, listen, don't think I'm some mug, and then you can take advantage. But here's how it is. And generally, people were accepting of that, and they kind of. A lot of people were kind of pleased. You know, they wanted to get out of crime themselves, but didn't mm-hmm. have no way of doing it. And I then went and looked for rehabilitation.
2: Do you know one thing? with you, Noel, that I'm fascinated by. In fact, any crim that was as hardcore as you were for so many years, a turning point for you was when you learnt about your child. How does someone turn their back on their child and risk all that for a life of crime, knowing that you could very well be locked up? What's What's the drug there that just draws somebody into risking all that?
3: Yeah, I mean, when you when you start out on this life, when I started out on this life, I was 14 years old. You know, by the time you're 19 and you've done three years in prison and you've done, like, eight-armed robberies or ten-armed robberies, you are immersed in that life. It's very hard to, to change your mind and get out of it, even if you want to. It. it is a real struggle to break through that. It's, as I say in, in the book, it's like... You know, you immerse yourself in these deep-running waters of crime with all these currents and that, and then trying to get back to shore is like is a nightmare. You know, and uh, very few people are able to do it because very few people um, have have got any sort of anything to replace the crime and criminality in their life. I was lucky; I had writing. Writing became a a joy to me, and writing became. A way of life to me, and, and that opened everything up to me. That education opened up a whole world to me, rather than me being just a, a scumbag criminal sitting in to the top security jail. I was suddenly, you know, I knew about the world, and that changed me completely. Um, and you know, when you start out on it, you don't have no fault for anybody else. That's what mm-hmm. criminals are like. We, we, you know, we're self-centered and vain and greedy and you know, venal, and you don't think about anybody else. Or so if you do, you think about it like this. Well, if I get 10 years, my family will be white because I've left them enough money to get by. And you don't think about the other side of it, the love, you know, the feelings, the emotions. That only comes to you when you get empathy. And I didn't have empathy as a criminal. Very few criminals do.
2: Was it hard for you to believe that you actually could be an authentic author and be a legitimate author because... Like you just said, you're immersed in this world and it's hardcore. Like we're not just talking in a – you're you're in a deep, deep, dark place and then you spend 33 decades in prison. And when you went in there, your reading and writing obviously was a challenge for you, but then when you come out, you actually have got this new skill. Did you – how hard was it for you to believe in yourself?
3: It was – with me, it was kind of – it was hard at the beginning because, you know, I knew no other life. I had faith in myself. I always did as a criminal. You know, I was the kind of criminal that if somebody said that place can't be robbed, I would want to rob it. So I always <laughs> had kind of that faith in myself. Um, an arrogance, really, a criminal arrogance that I could do what I wanted to do. And that's how most criminals think. That, you know, the arrogance of it is, yeah, I'll be a criminal. Yeah, society doesn't want me to be. And neither does a law. But, you know, what the hell? I'm going to do what I want to do. And it was the same when I decided to go straight. At first, it was a bit frightening. And you know, I thought to myself, no, I can do it. I've done
2: worse things. I've done, you know, things 10 times worse than this. So let's try and put a bit of effort into this. And I did, and it worked. But- <laughs> you know, it's funny, Noel, that in the, in the world right now, people are being paid large amounts of money to teach people to be silent, to meditate, or to be mindful. That they're paying, they've got all these <laughs> courses and videos and stuff. Yet, you've talked about one of the hardest parts of being in prison was where you were locked away and you you called it the rule of silence. You're, yeah. you, you're sitting there for long periods of time with silence and all you're hearing is a knock on the door, your tray's slid in, door slams closed. You're by yourself. What's that really like? Can you vividly remember those moments?
3: I can, yes. I remember the bad moments. I mean, there's certain times when I was, um, you know, it's, it's not people talk about the glamour of crime and it's not much and glamour when you're in a cell with a solitary confinement cell, you know, with blood coming out your ears and a broken wrist, and you're laying there with no clothes on, covered in your own vomit and blood. You kind of, you know, you get this kind of inner strength. And if you don't, I've got to say this as well. I mean, this is a well-known fact. A lot of people who go to top security prisons in Britain, certainly, um, for long sentences. Uh, a large majority end up being nutted off. They end up in mental hospitals because they can't handle the amount of time and they can't handle the lifestyle. I mean, you think about it, when you wake up every day thinking that when you walk out on the landing, you could be stabbed by somebody because you were sitting talking to somebody else, Mm. you're living on an edge all the time, you're living on a razor's edge. So, you know, you've got to kind of like get your head right um, around that sort of stuff. Um, You know, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but it is doable. I mean, I've done it and several other people have done it, so, you know, it's not impossible.
2: You said to be a good armed bank robber you had to learn to detach from what you knew yeah. was right to be able to do what you had to do. Can you take those skills today Noel and put them into your writing or your leadership in business to your private life I mean do you can you take those lessons that were used for crime back then and detach today to be an author?
3: To a certain extent, yes. I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of speaking to um, universities and criminology students and probation officers and people like that around the country. Um, and what, how I use my my sort of criminal skills, if you like. When I was robbing a bank and saying there was 40 customers in the bank, I, I kind of taught myself to not really see anybody's faces. You know, the last thing you want to do is humanise your victims. So, i taught myself to like blank out the faces and that works when I'm doing public speaking because all I see is a mass of people and I'm quite happy and um, it doesn't bother me speaking to them because I've actually taken over banking halls and you know you, you don't see them so it does you can use the things you learn in the criminal life to a certain extent in the straight life um, not all of them obviously I couldn't actually pull a gun out on anybody when I'm doing a <laughs> speaking <laughs> engagement and tell them to pay attention but, put it in that their phone you know, son can, <laughs> yeah <laughs> And, and attention to detail as well. I, I remember when I first got out of prison and I was asked of one of my first public speaking engagements and there it was, it was five other people who had serious experience of public speaking and we were all there backstage and I'm sitting there drinking a cup of tea and they're walking around looking up their notes and everything and, and one of them turned at me and said, "Ain't you going to look at your notes? I said, I haven't got any notes. <laughs> what are you going to talk about? I said, oh, I'll know that when I get out on stage, <laughs> and that comes from my criminal side. It's that you know you just do things on the spot, and then you know make your way through. And, and I went out and spoke. You're supposed to speak for fifteen minutes. I spoke for nearly twenty minutes. They had to drag me off the stage. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, the, so some of the skills do work. They do transfer. Well,
1: what was what was the hardest? What was the hardest? Noel, your first armed robbery or your first time on stage? <laughs>
3: Neither really, because I, I, I kind of thrive on that sort of thing. Yeah, I thrive on the excitement and the attention. I mean, I, I've always been a bit of an attention junkie. I <laughs> realised um, some years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're telling us all those armed robberies were merely a stage for Noel Smith to um to perform on. Is that right?
3: Well, I do say that. A, a lot of the armed robbers I've met in my life have been frustrated actors. They love to perform, <laughs> but have no audience. And and. I know it sounds really slight and and, and silly, but getting into armed robbery is a way of performing and getting paid for it.
2: That is so interesting, you know, isn't that it? Simple, but... That is really interesting. I've never heard that expressed like that before. No, that's. Well, um...
3: you, I'll tell you an example. You go to your grand court and listen when armed robbers are giving evidence in trials. You know they're, they're, they're absolutely masters at it, most of them. You know you can get out there and you can you can hold a jury in your hand. That's how I have got so many not guilty. Um, you know, and, and that's what we do. <laughs> we, our brothers are, are there to grab your attention wherever they go, and that's
2: what we do. It's if I could,
3: burning.
2: if I could go to the to the courtroom, and I want to talk about the witness box, but you talk about becoming a witness of yourself, and I'm wondering when you think about being a witness to yourself, perhaps in your latter days of your career as an armed. Bank robber versus today, when you're being a witness to your life, how do you compare those two things, Noah? What's the obvious thing that stands apart from you know not doing bad things? But in your psychology, when you're a witness to yourself, what's the biggest difference in your mind about how you approach things today?
3: Well, previously, everything I approached, I approached in a criminal manner, it didn't matter what it was. I mean, even if it was a A simple case of going to see my kids, I would, you know, I'd have to dodge the police, make sure no one was following. Everything was to do with criminality. Everything was to stop me being caught at things. Whereas in in my life now, um, everything is, I've got a a, a sort of a a better take on things, a better understanding of of what I do, if you know what I mean. And Mm. I don't have the kind of fear that drove me in those days. There's always a fear at the back of your mind that you're going to get shot or you're going to get caught or you're going to end up in prison for years or this screw's going to try and take your letter and you're going to have to punch him. You know, there's always that kind of thing in the background whereas there isn't now. I'm more relaxed. I can approach things in a sort of better manner. I've done a lot of, i know, know five years of therapy in the prison, intense therapy in the prison over um, before I got out and it, it sort of gave me a few tools to use in, in real life, you know. I mean, the one thing is to the one thing that's always done me is my temper. And I've kind of learned to, to let things go, you know, and to see the other side of things. When I was a criminal, I was quick to violence, um, mm. you know, and that was necessary for that kind of world. But in this world, I don't need to be an angry man. I don't need to be constantly working out what people are trying to say to me because I can take it at face value. I'm not, I'm no longer surrounded by a load of criminals who will lie to me and a load of policemen who will lie to me. So... You know, it's a different thing. It's just a different
2: sort. We've had a few military personnel uh, on the show, Noel, and then we have corporate leaders and stuff. And the commonality is that when you've got a purpose or a mission, it can direct your energy, direct your attention. And I suspect that back when you are a criminal, your purpose, your mission, as we discussed, was a vendetta against the police to get away with it to your, your mission was a life of crime. Then when you're inside, I suspect there was a mission, or I don't know, maybe it's surviving or, or you know, getting through yeah. dealing with prison. Is it the same way when the military guys come back from serving that a lot of them lose their way because they had a mission when they were serving? When they get back to society, they don't have a mission. But when they do, they can then do the job particularly well regardless of what it is. Do you find that now looking back through the periods of your life that you've been driven by a purpose? And if so, what's the purpose for Noel Smith now?
3: Yeah, I I kind of see where you're coming from with that and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the difference with me being when crime was my mission, I made a conscious decision um, to make crime no longer my mission and my mission became to get out and to actually, for the first time, live a life where I could see my family and where I Mm. wasn't sleeping with a gun under the pillow and where nobody was out to get me. That was my mission, was to make my life a normal life. Um, and I can understand what you're saying, because, you know, a lot of long-term prisoners who get out, and I've spoken to to dozens of them people that I've known in prison who've served long and the same happened to me. You get into a depression. When you come out, you no longer have the structure you had in your life. And and chaotic as it may have been when you were a criminal and a prisoner, it's still a kind of stru- structure that you've come become used to. And you get into a kind of depression. All long-term prisoners do about six months to a year after they come out. And I I still do things like, I've still got the habits. I'll walk along the street to work. I'll pass a a bank with a security van outside and I'll make me glance at my watch just to see what time it is. Even though I have no intention of robbing (laughs) it. It's these kind of things that speak in your mind. They become like, you know, they become like, it's like an old war horse hearing a, a, a bugle and wanting to go into battle. It's kind of there, but you, you know you can't. You know, so I still do the ink things. But, yes, you, I made being straight and being normal my mission. I decided I was going to commit no more crime and I was going to have no more victims, and that was it for me, and that became my mission. So I was lucky that I had something to put my hand. Yeah. Luckily, I could write as well because if I couldn't write, you know, That's right. it would have yeah. been double hard. Mm. Yeah.
2: What's the greatest compliment you'd like someone to pay you now, Noel. You have got this new career. You are able to share your experiences, your lessons, your learnings. What's the greatest compliment you'd like somebody to pay you behind your back?
3: I'd like to say that, you know, I'd like to think that people thought I was okay and I was a, a normal guy and I looked after my family. I mean, that's the, that's the main thing. My son dying in jail taught me that, you know, you, you can't live without your family. You, you know, if, if you're If you're a normal human being, you want the closeness of family contact. So, For someone to say that I was a family man now, when I've done so little for my family in in Mm. the intervening years, that would be the greatest compliment.
2: After all you've been through, we've touched on it in this show, but obviously, you know, 30-odd years of serving in the hardest core prisons for Her Majesty. With all you've been through, is there anything you fear today?
3: Um... I fear the things that that normal people fear, you know, illness, terminal illness, anything happening to my family or my friends. You know, just the normal kind of things. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a violent man anymore. I suppose it's still in me somewhere. I do have the occasional argument, particularly on public transport. Um, <laughs> and, well, that's, I've got to explain that. It's kind of like, if you're in in a prison like Parkhurst or, you know, Long Larton, where people are serving long sentences and people are really nasty, horrible criminals, they still know enough to give you your own space. You don't get in anyone else's space, you know? You don't like... <laughs> oh, whereas out here, the first day I was out, I was up in Waterloo Station. I'm coming back, back from the prison at home... And those guys like walking along, looking at their phones, bumping straight into me, and I think if you've done that it, in You get a right break straight in your north. but not even saying sorry. And so that kind of thing—that that, what frightens me—is you know losing control. I know I won't. I, I've had plenty of time to to look at things, but I'd hate to lose control, um, just over a silly argument or something like that. I've got to
1: be in my garden. If there's anyone that's listening that was l- walking along the train station, what, this time about five <laughs> yeah. years ago, Noel or so, they yeah. should be thanking yeah. their lucky stars. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, Do you know what's funny, uh, Robbo, I was reading some stuff on Noel, and this is a classic which you don't think about when someone was locked away for as long as Noel. He said, one of the big things that really baffled me when I finally emerged into the world was the advances in technology. Before going to jail, I'd had a mobile phone the size of a paperback book and it had an aerial sticking out of it. <laughs> and
3: you just don't think
2: about these things because we all take right. it for granted. But you missed all that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, everything had changed when I come out. The Money, banknotes, yeah. notes, everything. Suddenly, there was armed police walking around the streets with machine guns. i never see that before I went away. No, it's amazing. <laughs>
1: That, that'd probably change your mind about robbing a bank or two, wouldn't it, as well, wouldn't it?
3: Actually, you've got me thinking about how to take their guns, but, you know, that's another story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Leopard doesn't change
2: your spots. Mate, um, uh, you, became, you became a poet. Where did that start? Was that something that started by accident in prison? Was it in solitary confinement? Like, that's quite an interesting thing for a diamond geezer to, number one, admit, but number two, become a real at. Where did the poetry thing start?
3: Well, it kind of started by accident. Really. I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't have the discipline or the intelligence to write anything long. So I thought to myself, what's the, what's the shortest thing I can write and complete? And it turned out it was poetry. And, and what happened was I was in Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight uh, back in the 80s, and they had an in- there was three prisons on the island and they had an inter-prison poetry competition. And the first prize was, I think it was £10, which was quite a lot of money back in those days. And um, I decided to have a go. And I sat down and, and started writing a few ones. And I thought, oh, this ain't bad. I quite enjoyed it. And um, funny enough, one second prize, a fiver. I thought, this might be for me. And I started entering poetry competitions. And funny enough, um, we had a kind of little black market in prison. There's a lot of little black markets. But one of them was... There was a guy who used to make uh, greeting cards. And he needed someone to write verses, um, customised verses for each customer. And he hired me at, uh, yeah. around just about a week and I used to write him some, um, you know, I used to write the verses for him. And from that, I kind of honed my art of, of you know, writing poetry. And, uh, and next thing know, I had a, a poem appeared in the National Newspaper as their poem of the week. So that yeah, was really where it started. Hey,
1: um, you know, rap music's all about rhyming to a beat yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Have you ever thought about a hip-hop career?
3: Oh, God. Uh, not hip-hop, <laughs> no. Um, I, have, I have done a, a couple of recordings for people. I mean, there's a, there's a great Irish... Have you really? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a great uh, um, um, so second-generation Irish rock band here called the Bible Code Sundays. Um, and they're all ex-pobes and, and, you know, Elvis Costello's brothers, the lead singer. Oh, and what? and they, so they Yeah, they read my book when they were on tour. And um, just recently, I've been up to the studio to put some vocals on, um, uh, on one of their latest releases. Um, oh, and unreal. I haven't seen with the band when they're out, um, you know, performing.
1: Yeah, it's quite you, happy, Jailhouse though,
3: Rock? But... Is, is, is that, is not, that the I, tune? I try. I, I actually DJ under the name of Jailhouse Rocker. I play a lot of 50s oh, stuff, no. and stuff. like that. Do you really?
1: Yeah. yeah there you yeah.
3: go. Good for you. Nice to work. a lot of festivals and clubs in it.
2: Yeah, and it does it with two, two Glock nine millimetres just where everybody's paying attention.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Hold it! don't you dare make a request. So,
2: <laughs> Noel, in, yeah. in prison back in the day when you first took to books and you decided this was something that could be beneficial to you and started to enjoy it, tell me about a book that, was one of the books that really influenced your thinking? Like, was there a book that you think, you know, when I read that, that was the moment where everything clicked?
3: Yeah, it was, um, I was in Ballstool. Um, I don't know if you know what Ballstall is. It's, it's like the sort of young offenders uh, go to imprisonment in six months to two years. Uh, so we're all um, aged between 14 and 21 in the prisons. Um, and whatever it was, they had what they called floaters. We had... Um, Everything was censored. If we got the newspapers, everything was cut out of the newspapers. We had a matron on every week. There was normally some spinster who had been a police officer or a prison officer in a woman's prison, and she wouldn't... You know, these matrons were really and the censors. You got your letters, and you might have, like, two lines given to you, like, hello, John, love you. You know what I mean? Because she classed everything that was in the letter as too rude or too... (laughs) So we couldn't get hold of really decent books. All our books were... Agatha Christie and stuff like that, they'd come off old battleships. But there was what they called floaters in the prison. That is, people would smuggle in books with the covers off, and then they would hire them out around the prison so you could pay two roll ups to get a decent book with a bit of sex and a bit of violence in it. And one of the first ones that I ever got was by a guy called G.F. Newman, and it was called Sir You Bastard. Um, and what it was, it was basically about, it was based on the Cray twin story, except it was oh, yeah. one man and it was about criminality throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s. And, and it was the first book that I actually picked up and looked at that actually said the F word in it and actually spoke the way we spoke. Yeah. It was the, the you know, the patterns of speech were the same as what we were using because these were, were London villains and, and you know, I thought to myself, wow, you can actually write the stuff that we speak. And it surprised me and that, that really sort of set me off and, and got me interested in writing.
2: No, this has been uh this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and I could literally talk to you for hours. I'm just one last question before I let you go. Say you're getting to the end of your time and there's a chance you're going to be getting out and we are a year away or nine months away, six months away. What was starting to go through your mind as the thing you missed the most that you said, as soon as I get out, the first thing I'm going to do is
3: what? So many things, seriously. I mean, in the months, you get what they call, in prison, they call it gate fever. So the closer you get to the gate, um, the more you start thinking about the outside. Because when you do prison, the outside, you cut it off. You can't live in two worlds at once. So it was a lot of tiny little things. I mean, one day I'd go down about three weeks before I got out. I went down for breakfast in the dining hall and got their usual frozen cardboard bread. And I thought, wow, I can't wait to actually taste fresh bread or to read a newspaper that nobody else, that 20 other people have been from. <laughs> Or, you know, just to see a train or to to get on public transport or to see a friend or a member of my family. I mean, everything goes through your head in those weeks running up to it. And each day brings new um, great stuff that you're going to be doing, you know, just simple stuff like walking down the street, going to the pictures, watching the film on your own television. There's just so many things.
1: I'd like to take that one step further. When yeah. you come to the end of the longest time, as in your time on the planet, what would you like, what would you like him to write on your headstone?
3: Uh, he wasn't a bad geezer. <laughs> he was a diamond
1: geezer. He was a diamond, was a diamond yeah. geezer.
2: <laughs> Noel, yeah. um, just it'd be remiss of me, as we approach Christmas time, and as we all know, Christmas time is time for darts. As a Diamond geezer and Noel Razor Smith, are you a man who enjoys the darts at the pub?
3: I am, yes. Actually, yeah. <laughs> My father was a very good darts player. <laughs> My father was a brilliant darts player. Is that right? He learned his maps. <laughs> yeah, I
1: don't want a game of darts. Gary's a darts there addict. There we go. Like, I, <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: I, I knew I'd like this guy. I knew there was a commonality. There's a commonality. <laughs> No, uh,
1: you yeah. can you can tell when Christmas time is getting close in the Mojo oh, Radio Show Studio, Noel, because Gary walks in the room going one hundred and eighty.
2: Do you know, Noel? This is um, this is a fantastic show. You have dropped so much, so much gold. right well, if we we in the studio, we call you the golden, you. the golden geezer. But um, mm. this. There is so many lessons, and I just hope that people take the lessons, regardless of the world that you've come from and the world that you spent 30-odd years in with Her Majesty into what you do today. But there is so much value and so many learnings in what you're saying that we can apply to, honestly, our work lives, our personal lives, our family lives. It's been a real treat, mate. I, um, I've i really enjoyed Speaking with you It's been an honour To have you on the show And I reckon We'd uh, We look forward To meeting you In a pub somewhere To uh, have a game of darts Mate It'd be great fun Yeah Thank
3: you very much Yeah I look forward to that Double <laughs> not, the, Mate The
1: way I play darts I'll stick to the pool table Okay If that's yeah. alright With everybody
3: yeah. <laughs> I'm Anna Devenna I'm also known As the Sleep Muse. I help people Get a great
0: night's sleep And
3: often when people are struggling with sleep, I suggest that they listen to the Mojo radio show. And when they do, they fall asleep instantly.
1: (laughs) Barring an absolute miracle, that is hands down my favourite interview this year.
2: I was taking notes down here and I wrote down, he said... I thought just it's so much it's just a gold geezer he said cut it off you can't live in two worlds at once mm. and I thought you know mm. there's discipline yeah there's resilience there's grit there's mm-hmm. focus mm-hmm. there's compartmentalization I mean that's just it's so interesting the lessons of how he coped as a crim and a survive in prison he said how was I going to do this sentence and I'd say to people listening how are, you going to, how are you going to live your life? Mm. How are mm. you going to lead? And actually, because he had to make a conscious decision as to how will I get through this? But we don't take the time to say, how do I want to be as a parent? How do I want to be as a leader? The other thing I love as a speaker, and it's absolutely true, is to trust your intuition. What are you going to speak about? I don't know. but yeah, I'll know I once know. I get up there. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tool. That's an absolute tool that you can use if you decide to trust your intuition. I mean, yeah. that, hands down, that was just an absolute. That was great. Well, I
1: loved it. Where'd you find him? How'd you find Noel? Um, do you know what? He just popped up on Vimeo or YouTube or something. And I was it's, surfing It's around. actually,
2: it's actually, it's actually the, the kids call it Vimeo,
1: mate. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> or, or actually it was Pornhub. No by by Mio. And you Utub. You Utub? You Utub. You yeah. Utubby. <laughs> but anyway, no, he popped up and he was it was it was him talking about his life and and the story he told about his son dying and how it turned his life around. And I, I took interest from a personal level and when I went diving deeper into him, I, that's when I wrote to you and said, mate, we've got to get this guy on the
2: show. He was uh he was an absolute diamond gold-plated geezer. So Folks, we hope you enjoyed that one. We hope you took as much out of it as we did here in the studio. To be honest with you, I don't think there is any doubt as to what song we will play <laughs> to take us out this week. So if you without know us, further ado... If you know us well, you'll know what we're talking about. We're out.
3: There was a friend of mine on murder And the judge's gavel fell Sure found him guilty,
2: gave him 16 years in hell.